welcome to the second episode of the CCGI podcast. Last week, we interviewed Dr. André Boussière and had discussed the role of the Canadian Chiropractic Guideline Initiative. This week, we have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Sean Thistle, founder of Research Review Service and CCGI Opinion Leader. Before we speak with Sean, Kent and I would like to discuss the Opinion Leader and Best Practice Collaborator programs. So tell me, Kent, who are these people? Most chiropractors are probably unfamiliar with opinion leaders or best practice collaborators. Opinion leaders are chiropractors who have influence on the attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors of their colleagues. They're generally viewed by their colleagues as likable, trustworthy, and influential. Implementation research supports the use of opinion leaders to deliver evidence-based recommendations and programs to improve the quality of care. Whereas best practice collaborators are also important in creating change on a local or provincial stage. They're chiropractors who are seen as caring, knowledgeable, and good educators who often assist the opinion leaders in their role. Thanks, Kent. Uh, I've, been, I've been learning more about opinion leaders in my new role with the CCGI, and my initial question was, why do we need opinion leaders? What kind of an impact uh, do they have on uptake of clinical practice guidelines and best practice tools? I, I discovered that reviews on the effectiveness of opinion leaders suggest that there's a 12% increase in compliance with interventions when using opinion leaders to promote evidence-based practice. So this tells us that opinion leaders are an important piece of the puzzle when trying to reach out to our peers. Another question that I'll I'll expect clinicians to ask is, what do opinion leaders do? Well, opinion leaders play an important role in promoting healthcare initiatives and communicating key messages. For example, they reach within their network of peers and they ensure that they're engaging with clinicians, policymakers, and educational institutions. Um, Sean Thistle demonstrates this by engaging with clinicians via research review service and engaging with students by teaching courses uh, rooted in the latest evidence. Uh, Kent, maybe you could tell us about best practice collaborators. Who are they? Well, best practice collaborators are also influential chiropractors who encourage their colleagues to use the latest evidence in clinical practice. They share resources on guideline recommendations and evidence-informed practice. Some of these collaborators will work with third-party payers and other stakeholders. So there's a variety of different activities that the best practice collaborators are involved in. They can include discussing key guideline recommendations with clinicians, leading things like events or workshops or speaking at conferences, and having a presence on social media. Collaborators are good at building relationships through communication with clinicians, and they support their peers in accessing CCGI tools and resources while addressing any concerns that come up from clinicians. So clearly, the use of opinion leaders and best practice collaborators are reasonable strategies of increasing uptake of evidence-informed practice among Canadian chiropractors. However, they're just one piece of the puzzle and need to be used in conjunction with other knowledge translation strategies. Okay, well, we'd like to introduce today's guest, Dr. Sean Thistle. He is a practicing chiropractor, educator, entrepreneur, research geek, and knowledge transfer leader. He is founder and CEO of RRS Education, a continuing education company providing weekly research reviews, informative seminars, and convenient e-learning options for chiropractors. Sean also provides expert medical legal reporting in chiropractic malpractice cases and lectures part-time at the Canadian Memorial Chiropractic College in the orthopedics department. He has been actively involved in the CCGI as one of of Ontario's three opinion leaders and lives in Ontario with his wife Katie and son Calvin. So Sean, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. Nice to speak to you. Yeah. Um, So how would you describe your role as an opinion leader so far? Uh, it's been a really interesting sort of addition to the the things I was already doing. So it, it wasn't a matter of 
necessarily changing what I was doing because I'm already pretty heavily involved in, in trying to get uh, relevant research findings to those in practice and helping them apply it to patient care through all the things I do with uh, RRS education. Uh, and I'm also as active as I can be uh, through a variety of social media channels trying to put out different uh, you know, research findings and, and, and clinical practice advice and that sort of thing. So, so becoming an opinion leader was kind of a natural fit for me in that sense because I was kind of doing a lot of the things that are part of that role anyway. Um, one of the other things I've started doing through my uh, seminars, for example, is helping raise awareness about the CCGI and the, the resources that are available and the, and the clinical practice and patient education tools that are available through uh, that uh, portal and the CCGI's resources. So I think that's part of uh, my role that I can be specifically helpful with. And as you mentioned earlier, uh, I'm also on faculty at CMCC, so I, I try and integrate as much current evidence and, and real practice advice into my lectures as possible. So that's sort of what's been happening with me as an opinion leader. So it's a really great initiative, and I'm happy to be a part of it. Well, uh, we have another question for you, Sean. I mean, so what do you see as the role of Research Review Service in knowledge translation? Well, you know, my, my overarching goal uh, with the company and the, and the different sort of products and things that we offer is to get uh, actionable, realistic, practical research into the hands of practicing clinicians so they can improve their patient care. And, you know, I, I think our weekly research reviews, we've been doing them for over 10 years now. Uh, so there's a pretty big database. I think we have over 750 uh, reviews there. And it's we post one a week, and it's really just most of the people that use it or, or that are on it consistently, I see them in there, you know, once a week for 10, 15 minutes. And they're, it's just kind of a weekly habit people can develop to, to see what's happening in, in research. And I, I should qualify that by saying I don't think any service, I don't think any website, I don't think any... Uh, application uh, in any sense can help people read and consume everything. There's just simply too much these days. So one of my jobs is to kind of figure out what, what's interesting, what's current, what's important, but also make sure that we cover a variety of topics f to keep people interested and, and, and sort of help them understand the different levels and, and quality levels of research that are out there and how they can apply them to practice. And I think the most important thing I provide via all the branches of the company are a little bit of context uh, to the to how a particular piece of research or a particular paper fits into the overall picture of what we know and how clinical practice has evolved and, and how our patient care should look these days. And so I think, you know, uh, research is, is, is important, but it's, it's not as helpful if you lack some context. And I think that's the hard part for most practicing clinicians because they just don't have time to continuously read everything that comes out. So if I can contribute to that in any way, shape, or form, then I think I'm achieving what I set out to do. Well, that's great. Um, I know you still see patients on a on, on a regular basis, which is amazing. When I think of all the things that you do that you do and all the hats that you wear, mm -hmm. um, so another thing that we're we're interested in, and we think some of our listeners would be interested in, is how you use the literature and evidence in making in helping with your clinical decision making. Like, if I were to give you an example, like say you had a tough case of patient who presented with something like a chronic per or persistent cervical radiculopathy. How do you approach uh, a patient like that and integrate the evidence in your in your approach? Mm -hmm. So I, I think cervical radiculopathy is a, is a great example of, of where the real evidence-based practice model has to be implemented. 
as you know, it's a combination of, of patient preference, clinician experience, and best available evidence. So in the case of cervical radiculopathy, for example, there isn't a lot of high-level, uh, you know, randomized trial, systematic review type research that we can go on pertaining to the, the direct application of chiropractic treatment for patients with this condition. Um, for example, in the CCGI uh, recommendations, the best thing we can say at this point for, for grade three neck pain or a radiculopathy scenario is a graded exercise approach. So that's great, and that's based on best evidence available, but your patient's going to look at you and say, okay, what else are we doing? So then you have to, this is where back to my prior statement about context, having an, an overall view of what types of literature are available uh, on this particular topic as the example. So you could look to the Swiss cohort studies that have been done uh, implementing cervical manipulation for patients with known uh, disc herniations in their neck. And they get pretty good clinical results. But if you just look at the title of those papers, maybe read the conclusions, one might be tempted to say that, oh, well, I can, I can use manipulation or adjust the neck of any patient with an emerging or present uh, radiculopathy. But it's a good example of where context matters in that in those cohort studies, the patients knew they had a cervical disc herniation. So we already had an accurate diagnosis. The worst case scenario had already kind of happened. And plus they consented to, to undergo that treatment. I think the challenge in practice for this particular condition for, for clinicians is these, these sort of middle range uncertain cases where there's a little bit of neurological symptomatology showing itself, uh, maybe even during the course of care for a kind of mechanical neck pain presentation, all the way up to someone who comes to your office with a blazing radiculopathy. So there are a lot of choices to be made there. And, and I think having a good overview of what the evidence states from a variety of different levels of evidence is helpful in that sense. And that's, again, that's the real challenge for clinicians is to have an idea what's out there and also combine that with their experience treating a given condition. So personally, uh, from, a, from a cervical radiculopathy perspective, I trend towards using mobilization a little bit more than, than manipulation. And if the mobilization is, is um, tolerated well and they're responding well, then move on to a, a higher level thrust uh, environment. So uh, that's just my personal choice and what I've done over the years. So it, you know, integrating evidence is one part of it and different clinicians have different experiences and you have to come to a rational decision with the patient in front of you taking in, into consideration all the risks and potential benefits and so on. And just as one more side note on, on radiculopathy, I, I always think of it from my, me, uh, my medical legal uh, perspective as well. A lot of the cases of malpractice and, and lawsuits that we see with chiropractors these days involve uh, progressive neurological scenarios. So that's something to be, to be a little bit weary of and a little bit more cautious with in practice for practitioners. Um, you know, stroke and neck manipulation is, it, there's a lot more research on that now, and it's not as common in a medical legal environment, although it still does occur, uh, of course. But these, these emerging discogenic and disc herniation cases that a chiropractor is involved with and doesn't change the course of treatment throughout that, that uh, event, those are the types of things we're seeing in, in lawsuits now. So I think it's a good opportunity for us to, to take a moment, uh, step back, reassess what we're doing with the patient, see how they're responding uh, and make a, a combined decision and involve them in their own care and and just go forward from there. So it's a bit of a long-winded answer, I'm sorry, but the, it's a, the cervical radiculopathy is a really complex issue from a research and clinical perspective, so it's a good example. 
Well, good. Thanks for 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 uh, giving us that information, Sean. It's really helpful. Um, and we'd like to thank you for your time. Uh, we're we're running out of it. So um, this has All been right. really insightful. Um, and for the listeners, this is the time of the show when we ask you for a favor. Uh, if you're still listening, of course, uh, pull out your phone or your computer, uh, and please follow the CCGI on Twitter and LinkedIn. Uh, better yet, find the CCGI on YouTube channel on the YouTube channel and click subscribe. Uh, this will ensure that you, you receive notifications when we post new videos. So we'd like to thank you again for tuning in and thank Sean for joining us. Uh, we look forward to bringing you our next guest in two weeks. Our guest that day will be Dr. Bob Haig, CEO of the Ontario Chiropractic Association. We'll be asking him about how provincial associations use guidelines and research. We'll also find out how they disseminate resources and tools to their members. I promise this to be an entertaining and informative show. Bye for now.